You're listening to the Tech Life Today podcast featuring thoughtful stories and diverse personalities of the alumni, students, and staff of the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. This is the place to learn and be entertained by people with a passion and a purpose, both inside and outside the classroom. The Tech Life Today podcast is an extension of Tech Life Today, Nate's online magazine. You can find more stories online by visiting techlifetoday.ca or by going to Tech Life Nate on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Liz Pittman. I'm a writer for techlifetoday.ca and the host of this podcast. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Change. To some, that word is exciting, even energizing. To others, it brings up feelings of fear and anxiety. But does it have to? In a world that's changing at a rapid pace, many organizations feel like they're in a constant state of change, and they're not wrong. Many external factors drive the need for change. Shifts in industry demand, new technology, changes in government and legislation, new career paths. The change around us is seemingly endless. If we want to stay relevant and responsive, we need to transform and adapt constantly. So in a world that's changing at such a rapid pace, how do we create workplace cultures that embrace, support, and drive change and transformation? And can we shift our perspective so that it isn't so scary? I'm joined by Michael Hayworth, an organizational development consultant who works with teams and leaders across Nate on all kinds of topics, including change. Also joining us is Nate's Director of Strategic Initiatives, David McDine, who plays a key role in transformation projects across our Polytechnic. Michael, David, thank you for being part of today's episode. You kidding? Thank you, Liz. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Uh, welcome, and let's dive right in. So, Michael, uh, let's start with you. Sure. Organizational change can bring about a lot of uncertainty and anxiety for people, yet it's increasingly becoming the norm. We hear the saying, change is the only constant so often. Can you talk <laughs> a little bit about the importance of how we perceive the idea of organizational change in today's world? Yeah, for sure. That That's, uh, that's a great place to start, actually. So... Um, one of the first things to, to point out would be we even do ourselves a disservice by constantly talking about it in terms of change, because you're right, change is kind of the new reality. It's not this thing that we're going to digest, get through, and then be out on the other side of it. Um, so if you, if you look at kind of, you know, change theory or change management support that's been offered in the 80s and 90s, um, they really did talk about these these periods of freeze and unfreeze. So you'd, you, organization X does something really well and you just keep on doing it that way until it doesn't quite make sense anymore. There's some kind of external force that changes, something in the, in the company changes. So you, you're not frozen more, you need to unfreeze. So you unfreeze, you loosen things up, you change processes, you change structure, you change something about your company until you've got it, you know, like just right. And then you freeze again. And then you do it that way for another 20, 30 years until that doesn't work anymore. Well, that no longer really applies to modern organizations. Mm -hmm. If you look at the way that things have gone for the last, you know, 15 or so years, you know, the explosion of technology and a hundred other factors make it so that you kind of have to always be in this unfrozen mode. You can't expect that, you know, we're going to get it right. And we're going to do it that way for 30 more years until it doesn't make sense anymore. So uh, we talk a lot about different kind of, you know, um, uh, ways organizations can think about, each, uh, about themselves in terms of continuous improvement and other fun things. But one that we really kind of latch on to is the learning organization. 
So the learning organization is a theory that basically posits that um, organizations should be more like students. They mm -hmm. should be more like learners. You should always be trying new things. You should always be experimenting. You should always be expanding your horizons because a learner will never say, well, I've learned it all mm -hmm. and now I'm done. So an organization should never say, we've got it perfect and now we're done. You're mm -hmm. always learning. You're always trying something new. So yeah. that's a, a good way to kind of maybe frame the idea of change versus just the way that we do things. Yeah, that's great. David, you spend a lot of time talking to teams across Nate about transformation, the importance of being agile and adaptable during change. One of the images that sticks with me is how you compare a strong, adaptable organization to a river. And I'd love if you could share that with our listeners. Sure. I, I like to think of change in, in two frames. Um, on the one side, you can have uh, change viewed like a freeway model. Um, what that would mean is a executive, the board, uh, senior leadership within sets direction says we're moving from X place to Y place. We're going to build the infrastructure. We're going to build the roadways and we're going to move the organization uh, accordingly. Mm -hmm. The other way to think about change, though, is that we are all kind of within a river. Um, we all have different access to um, different rocks we can move around that river to change the flow and the direction over time. Uh, depending on what our sphere of influence is. Um, but over time, you can actually actively change an organization from within. So the idea is that uh, within your sphere of influence, within your specific department, within your specific area, within your specific unit, uh, you can move rocks around in order to move the organization. Mm -hmm. uh, and ideally what happens is that the, the leadership can kind of come in and see and say, this particular part of the river is working really well. Let's scale this across and they can apply the resources in order to, to trench the river into a new direction uh, to scale kind of some of those initiatives up. Um, but the idea is that we all kind of participate actively within the organizational change. Mm -hmm. I can visualize it. It really does make a lot of sense. Can you talk a little bit more about the role employees can play in organizational change? We should all actively see, our, see ourselves as active participants in change. Um, we're not just takers of the organizational shifts. We should actually be looking at what is the purpose of the organization? Why do we exist? And what is my specific role and how do I, how do I influence that direction of the organization? The other thing we should be doing is thinking a little bit about how we, uh, how we shift an organization kind of within our own area. Uh, and what that means is to say, uh, we want to be able to kind of build our networks across the organization. We want to understand what is happening within the organizational structure. Uh, we want to understand the processes of change that go into it, understand the con context in which we're working in within the organization, but also within the larger field that we're working in. Mm -hmm. um, we also want to think about what problems that we want to actually try and solve within our own unit and how that contributes to the larger organizational mission. Michael, what impact can change have on employees? Yeah, I mean, it can have a lot of impacts and it kind of depends on, you know, uh, going back to what David was saying about kind of what role you play within a change in in whatever, you know, team or organization you have to be a part of. So David, I, I've heard you talk about the uh, the river versus free before too. And, and, and I actually like that analogy for one more reason that, that hasn't been kind of thrown on the table already. You talk a bit about shift. Um, and when I think about the, those two kind of, you know, uh, distinct kind of ways you can travel on a freeway or on a river, a freeway is pretty dang stagnant, right? Like it's, you build it and it goes in one direction and it doesn't move. Whereas, you know, rivers, they, they, they dry up, they expand, they go down new directions, they pave new, new, new paths for themselves. So I love that idea. Um, and when I think about uh, uh, those roles that people play in those, the, those changes and how they might react to it, um, the two kind of play... Um, 
off of each other. So we know that that, that people, when they're dealing with whether it's kind of a large, you know, a transformational change or a small incremental change or just an evolution of what they're doing at work, you really take on one of four roles. So you either become um, someone who resists change. So you don't like it, you don't want to go along with it, you, you put your foot down and, and you try to do all you can to stop it from happening. Mm -hmm. um, you can be a compliant to change. So which means that I don't like it. It's not for me. It's not the decision I would have made. But okay, I guess kicking and screaming, I'll go along with it. You can be a cooperative to the change. You can be a cooperator, which means that, yeah, you know, I see some good in it. I can, I can see some personal benefit to it. I'm not really, you know, going to dive in and try to drive this thing and make it happen, but I'm not going to stop it either. You know, sure, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cooperate with what the organization wants to do. Uh, and then the last piece, and this is where we spend a lot of our, our time focusing on, um, is on change champions. And those are those people who kind of grab onto the idea and they really exert kind of extra energy. They go above and beyond. They put in that discretionary effort to try to make the change happen. So, so the, the question around, you know, how do people react? to change, that is a lot of the ways that you can kind of be compartmentalized into how you react to change, depending on kind of what's going on with you. Mm -hmm. So at the, at the top of the, of the, uh, the episode, if you will, uh, you said, you know, people often feel, you know, anxious or, or nervous about change. And that's, that's bang on. That's just human nature. Yeah. Um, so depending on what's going on with you, you can kind of find yourself in one of those four different categories. Um, and it's a good idea to, to reflect and go, what am I? You know, am I am I cooperative with this change? Am I compliant to it? Where where do I kind of fit into this model? Mm -hmm. And I think there's something to be said about uh, shifting the mindset around change within the organization. And the river model, I think, helps with that. And the more we get used to the idea that change is a natural part of it, and that it's going to change regardless of whether you participate or not. Um, that you really want to do be an active participant in this. Uh, you recognize that there won't be a stagnant time; that it will constantly be evolving. And then it's about finding what your specific role, your comfort level is, because organizational change requires a whole bunch of different roles. Okay. We can't all be change makers. We can't all be uh, excited about this. We need people who are also going to be uh, some second guessing and some kind of testing on some of those ideas, some pushback. Um, and it's in that back and forth, I think, that you really get some of those really good ideas between tradition and the foundation of what we are as an organization and maybe where we're going to go. You don't want to have kind of one one way of doing things. And one of the ways that we think about the way that people react to change and how they might fall into some of these different, uh, these different kind of categories or these different roles, um, we use uh, tools like the, uh, the, the William Bridges transition curve or the, the Fisher transition curve. Um, and these are basically, um, if, if, uh, if, if you can think about it, but what a bell curve looks like, like a standard deviation curve, and you flip it upside down, so it looks like a giant U. Um, and essentially, the the, the the theories posit that, you know, when when it's, again, kind of big or small or medium-sized change that's happening um, in your life or in your organization, um, you kind of start near the top of the end of the U. There's a bit of excitement. There's the possibility of something new. Um, and then people inevitably start having those second guesses, right? They start thinking about, you know... Um, uh, you know, what the negative effects of it might be. They think about, you know, security. They might have thoughts around threat or fear or guilt. And what the, the, the transition curves basically say is everybody needs to process those emotions and everybody's going to have different depths to their you. Mm -hmm. So some people, depending on a bunch of factors we could talk about, um, are going to have very shallow use, and I'm now motioning with my hands, um, <laughs> and other people are going to have really deep use. Sure. It's uh, like you're dancing. I've tried, I'm trying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
um, and uh, it's the Fisher dance. Yeah, great. Um, and uh, and yeah, so so you're gonna kind of experience those negative emotions, and that's okay. That is totally natural and normal. And we don't, as an organization, need to try to stop people from having those negative reactions. It's about being accepting of them, acknowledging them, and then having people work through them so that you can have a shallower you and you can start climbing back up the other side. You can start seeing that possibility of new way. You can start to imagine what the personal benefits for you are going to be. So you try to climb out of that. And that's what we as leaders and organizations need to do is try to help people have shallow curves and climb out the other side. And implicit in that to me is that there's this recognition that it's human beings within the organization and they're going to have an emotional response to that organizational change. Their lives are changing. Mm -hmm. Um, Their lives will be shifting in really subtle ways or more dramatic ways. And some people are more comfortable with it than, than not. Um, But I think recognizing that fact, especially for our leaders to say kind of where are you on those curves? Where are you kind of within that change process? Uh, And reflecting on that within your own team as an organization, uh, I think it's really critical for change to be successful. You've both touched on this briefly, but I I just want to follow up. Do either of you have um, tips that you can offer staff experiencing change and transformation in their workplace and and how to kind of deal with that and, and possibly change their mindset? Any advice? Again, I would double down on really understanding why why the organization exists mm-hmm. and, and key priority areas, and then reflecting on what your role is within that, um, and taking a really expansive view of what your role potentially could be. Um, what are the things that interest you? What are the priority areas of the organization? And try and find some overlap between those. Um, in the modern economy now, we're, we're at a point where you really do have to take an active approach to your career. Uh, you have to reflect on what you really love uh, to do, to spend your time with. Uh, what, are your, what are some of your specific skill sets? What are some of your gaps? Um, and it, that's a little bit of a harder activity yeah. uh, to reflect on kind of where is the space that I, I need maybe have some, I have some growth potential. Uh, but at the same time, kind of identifying what, what are those things that I really want to gear my career towards over the next five, 10 years? Um, the other thing is to really focus on kind of what is your locus of control? Focus on your the, the space around you that you actually have some influence over. Um, that feeling of, um, of being out of control of your own environment is, is really, I think, what causes a lot of anxiety. And so mapping, mapping kind of where I can exert some of that influence, um, I think, is really useful. Uh, and the other thing is, is start identifying as a change maker. Um, we, I encounter a lot of people around campus that, that define themselves as, oh, I, I have a difficult time with change. And then they'll run into a whole bunch of things that they're doing around campus uh, within their organization that is really pushing some of that change. They just don't identify as that change maker. Sure. So they don't see themselves as part of that river moving those rocks, even if really that is a part of their day-to-day work. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I give people, um, and this would be more for um, uh, you know teams who are, who are going through whatever kind of change it is. Um, I often tell them to to be selfish. Think about what's in it for you. Like if you're really struggling with something that's going on at work, um, try not to to broaden out your horizons too much and think too much about the wider organization and, oh my God, how am I going to affect change on this massive scale? Um, what can I personally do and what's in it, in it for me? We talk about those WIFM statements, the what's in it for me statements. So really think about what personal benefit do I stand to gain from this and what threats and what risks are there involved for me personally in this? And if you start 
um, processing your change from that very kind of, I know it sounds like kind of teenage, like, you know, but very kind of self-centered, um, selfish way, mm-hmm. uh, at least it gives you a pretty good starting point. Cause then you can figure out, well, where are, you know, after that, if I, if I know this about myself, what around me can I influence and what around me can I control and how do I try to make the best of, if I'm, if I tell myself, this is what I want to get out of this, um, then what kind of levers can I pull, um, uh, to try and make that happen? So, so yeah, and I know it sounds sometimes counterintuitive, but it's okay to be a little selfish and think about yourself. I want to circle back to our conversation about leaders. We talked about it a bit when you had your dance at the end of the table there, Michael. But <laughs> leaders have a huge role to play when it comes to supporting staff through change and transformation. And that includes creating a space that allows people to be innovative. David, how can leaders create the right kind of work environment to support transformation? Uh, it's a great question. Um I think as a primary function of a leader uh, is to build w- what a lot of people define as psychological safety on the team. Mm. Uh, and psychological safety is really about finding that uh, space where people feel comfortable uh, to be wrong. And what we're saying here is not that people can kind of do whatever they want and without consequence and it shouldn't matter. Um, but for people that are, are really trying to make positive change within the organization, well-intentioned change, um, innovation is going to be messy. Um, you're going to have creative ideas that some of which will work out and some of which I uh, haven't. And I, I, even in my six years at Nate, I've had those things. Um, and thankfully I've had, uh, leaders that have kind of said, that's okay. What's the next thing? Um, and it's that sort of idea where innovation, uh, thinking is really about a process more than it is about landing on a sp- few specific, really great ideas. Um, And so as you're collecting some of those not so good ideas or some of those changes that are being proposed uh, don't quite fit, uh, hit the mark, Mm -hmm. um, it's balancing kind of saying uh, we can't do that now or we can't actually operationalize that for X, Y, and Z reasons, um, but please keep going. Please keep engaging with this as much as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. Michael, how do leaders identify where their staff are in the change or transformation process. This goes back to the your change curve, I think, a little bit. How do they figure out where their team is at? Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's dozens of different ways to do it. Um, but I mean, the, the the number one thing to keep in mind is um, it does kind of start with vulnerability. So it's really hard to try to gauge where a team is at without being candid and honest and a little bit brave and taking some risks and asking some of those questions. You know, I mean, it would be... I think it'd be foolish of a of a leader to kind of just stick their their wet thumb up in the air and try to figure out for themselves where their team is at without actually asking them. So, I mean, um, some of the activities that uh, uh, that the, my team will go through is we'll actually put curves up on walls in different areas that are going through things, and people get unique little markers, like little um, tokens, and they can go and place their unique token where they are on the curve, and that gives leadership kind of a an objective view of where people are at. Um, uh, we can also, you know, those you can hold. You can get feedback. You can do digital stuff. There's a hundred different tools you can use, um, but but the idea of vulnerability is is kind of key. And people usually will be much more open and honest with where they're at if you as a leader are open and honest with them with where you're at. So while it's critical that a leader does champion change and supports changes externally, even if they're kind of wrestling with it inside. Um, it's still a good idea for that leader to show that human side and say, you know what? This isn't just hard on you. This is hard on me too. And I do think that's the right thing to do and so on and so forth. But you do have to have to show that degree of vulnerability if you want to get a real gauge from people around you about how they're they're dealing with this too. 
And I think uh, one of the ways that leaders subliminally uh, communicate things about where they're at on the change curve is exactly the mode in which they communicate. So the idea of kind of, uh, you know, an important strategic change that's happened kind of uh, up the organization that is now being communicated down the line. Uh, if a leader just sends forward FYI and then kind of the, the message it comes, um, that's communicating something about the importance of that change. That's communicating something about how much that staff member should engage with that change. Uh, now, if you juxtapose that against the leader that takes those key messages, uh, goes to the people understanding where different people are on the change curve, uh, has a conversation with them, explains kind of the reasoning behind this change, uh, their own anxieties around it, uh, reflects some of that staff member's anxieties back and says that's kind of a, it's a normal reaction to this. Um, I think that we're a lot better off. I think that team is a lot better off than, than the forward FYI. So really watching kind of what the mode of communication is and not just the actual contents of the message uh, is a really critical thing that uh, leaders can do. I have one last question for the both of you. Time flies when you're talking about change. Uh, we'll start with David. Resiliency, hot word today, especially when it comes to the topic of change. What does that word even mean? And how can an individual be resilient in these circumstances? I guess I'll take this a couple ways. Sure. One is just that this is hard. Um, just being a human being within an organization and, and thinking about um, the pace of change and, and where technology might take us, where your organization might go, um, it's psychologically exhausting. I, I find that there are days where I kind of have to just sit and say kind of what is staying the same in my life? Having two young kids where that's constant change at home, constant change at work. Um, so there is kind of a little bit of self-care that I have to kind of plan into my life at this point. Uh, and I would really encourage all staff to kind of, um, reflect on what that self-care looks like for them. Uh, the other side of this though, is to be an active participant in that change. Um, change is life to me. I, I really, uh, I, I used to have a lot of anxieties around this. Um, you know, I would be in my twenties thinking, thinking back to what the glory years, my teenage years, I'd be in my thirties thinking back to my glory years and my twenties. <laughs> it was just nostalgic looking backwards. Uh, and I don't know when it flipped, but, uh, I started taking kind of active control of, of where I wanted to go as opposed to reflecting on where I've been. Um, and so it's, some of it is identifying career gaps to say, I really enjoy this particular space of my career. I would like to grow this particular part, or I don't want to do this type of work anymore. Um, but then the other part of it is just kind of finding other parts of your life that you, you want to gravitate towards. Who do you want to be with? What kind of, um, personalities do you want to hang out with at work? Who do you want to be in your network? And really taking an active approach to, to growing that network, uh, growing those skill sets, uh, stepping out and trying to kind of um, uh, be an active participant in your own life as change happens. Mm -hmm. When I think about resiliency, it's, um, you, know, you can use, uh, uh, you know, kind of common analogies, like it's, it's rolling with the punches, it's sure. being able to bounce back, because um, there is that, that idea of, of adversity. You know, you don't have to be resilient 24-7. You know, there are things that are going on that are good, and you don't have to be resilient to them. Um, but that idea of kind of what's, what's in your control. Um, so, so we know a lot more about resiliency now than we did even 10 years ago. Um, we used to think about resiliency in terms of it being a personality trait. You know, so some people had it, some people didn't, and you're either resilient or you weren't. Um, we know that the, I mean, the literature tells us now that it's, it's, a, it's a different way of 
thinking about resiliency, then it's not just a personality trait. So your personality certainly does kind of have influence over it. But resiliency is really about a combination of risk factors and protective factors. So there are things that happen in your life that up your risk factor. These can be traumatic experiences. They can be, you know, um, a lack of a social network. It can be changes at work. It can be personality traits. Um, it can be all different kinds of stuff. And you also have protective factors. And these would be things like, you know, um, stability in your home, um, financial security, having good health. Um, so all the, the it's, so resiliency is this combination of the things that can make you more resilient and the things that make you less Less resilient. And as you have things happen to you, and they're either going to pile up on one side or the other. And the whole idea is to try to have more protective factors than risk factors. So yes, David, you're totally right. There are things that we need to do to up our own protective factors and try to mitigate our own risk factors. Um, and it's also incumbent on leadership to know about the resiliency in their teams so that they can try to mitigate those risk factors and try to add to those protective factors. We also know from the literature that the number one protective factor you can offer people is um, uh, social cohesion. So people, we're, we're humans. Again, we, we need to have some kind of connection. It looks different for everybody. But trying all you can to have those positive support networks out there, have friends, have family, have colleagues you get along with, and leaders who do all they can to you know, promote that, that social activity at work, that's one of the best things that you can do and your leadership can do to try to build that resiliency in people. Yeah, something that you could do tomorrow that I've, I've taken this advice uh, uh, recently as I've been giving it is get up up for your desk and have coffees with people, uh, go for lunch, um, take the time. I, I know it's kind of a, most organizations and Nate's no different. Uh, it's really busy times. Mm -hmm. um, but taking that time to, to really socialize and, and, and kind of get to know your colleagues and get to know your, uh, your network of people uh, in a really intentional way. Um, I find it very valuable. Uh, and I find actually that and counterintuitively, my work hasn't suffered. I, I find it's, uh, I have a better appreciation for the organization. Um, just kind of taking a broader spectrum of, of kind of what my interactions can include. Um, knowing that we're all human beings kind of within this organization, we're all struggling with some sort of change. Uh, and how do we kind of, uh, co-lease together kind of around some of these challenges? Good call. Wonderful. That's a great takeaway. And I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you both for joining me today and sharing insight on change and transformation in today's workplace. I learned a ton and I'm hopeful that our listeners did too. So thank you. Cool. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Liz. Thanks again to Michael Hayworth and David McDine for being part of today's episode. And thank you for listening. In the episode show notes, you'll find related stories, including how millennials will influence workplace culture, six tips to make your colleagues feel appreciated, and how to incorporate compassion into your self-care practice. The Tech Life Today podcast is an extension of Nate's online magazine, Tech Life Today. You can find more stories online by visiting techlifetoday.ca or by going to Tech Life Nate on Facebook and Twitter. If you have feedback you'd like to share about the podcast, please email techlife at nate.ca. Thanks so much for listening. We can't wait to share more Nate stories with you.